0: Hi book lovers! Do you want to make this summer your best reading season yet? Then you need to get your hands on the Biblio Lifestyle 2024 Summer Reading Guide. This year's guide is chocked full with 45 of the best new books carefully selected and organized into eight exciting categories. So whether you're in the mood for a flirty romance, a spine-tingling thriller, or something in between, we've got the perfect book waiting for you. Now, if 45 books sounds like way too much and you're looking for a more curated experience, the minimalist reads list, features eight must-read books from across genres. But that's not all. The guide also includes fun recipes, engaging summer activities, plus thoughtful lifestyle and reading tips to enhance your summer reading experience. So head on over to thesummerreadingguide.com and download your free copy of the Biblio Lifestyle 2024 Summer Reading Guide. That's the word the, the SummerReadingGuide.com. I'll also include a link in the show notes so you can sign up there. So download your free copy today and don't miss out on the ultimate summer reading experience and discovering your next favorite book. Happy reading! I'm Victoria from Biblio Lifestyle, and you're listening to the Reader's Couch podcast, the show that will help you bridge the gap between living a full and busy life to one where you're reading, learning new things and having fun. Today on the couch, I'm so excited to welcome author Raul Palmer to talk about his debut novel, A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens. In A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens, we meet Hugo, a Babalawao trapped in Miami with insurmountable debt while also grieving the loss of his wife. But one day, he receives a surprising offer from his nemesis, Alexi Ramirez. Alexi offers him a deal to cleanse his Haunted house in exchange for forgiving Hugo's debt. Hugo reluctantly accepts and he ends up embarking on a journey that forces him to confront his past. Now in this episode, Raul and I talk about his new book, his inspiration for the story, and he shares some great book recommendations. Now I have to say, I was drawn to this book on the title alone and I know Hylia Gardens, so I was like, let's see where this one is gonna go and it really didn't disappoint. But before we get to the episode, Please take a quick second, if you haven't already, to leave the podcast a five star rating and review. Believe me, it really helps the show. It's a great way to show your support and it's free. So hit those five stars. I'll be forever grateful. So thanks in advance. And now on to the episode with author Raul Palmer. <laughs> Readers, welcome again to The Reader's Couch. I'm your host, Victoria Wood, and here on the couch with me to talk about his debut novel, A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens, is author Raúl Palmer. <laughs> Raúl, welcome to The Reader's Couch.
1: Hey, thank you. Thank, thank you for having me.
0: Yay. I'm super excited about your book. Can't wait to get into it. But I want to know how you're feeling, first of all. Um, it's your debut novel. I'm excited about it, but I want to know how you're feeling. Uh, how are you feeling? How excited are you about this one?
1: Oh, I'm feeling great. It, it was actually um, it was such a long build up to the release day, right? And I was just so uh, so happy finally October third to go to Buffalo Street Books here in Ithaca and, and celebrate that moment. Uh, and since then, uh, just seeing the book in readers' hands, seeing uh, folks reading it, uh, you know, thoughtfully thinking about it, uh, it's been just an absolute dream.
0: Oh, I can't even imagine. So I was drawn to the title, first of all, Hialeah Gardens. My listeners know I'm in the state of Florida, but I want them to hear it straight from you before I start to break it down. Tell us about A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens and what can readers expect when they pick up your book? What's your elevator pitch?
1: Oh, sure. A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens follows Hugo Contreras, uh, a man who's in incredible debt, who's having his wages garnished by Alexi Ramirez, uh, an attorney who's also a collector, and uh, the novel actually opens up uh, with this really interesting uh, Faustian bargain, uh, and the idea being that uh, Alexei's house is haunted, and Hugo, who happens to be somebody uh, that can help folks with hauntings, a uh, uh, babalao uh, gets contacted by Alexi and Alexi, um, asks Hugo, uh, you know, uh, can you please uh, help me rid my house of ghosts? And Hugo at first kind of resists the idea, but eventually Alexi says, if you, if you do this for me, I'll forgive all of your debt as if it never happened. Right. And it's with that initial agreement, uh, that the story really gets rolling.
0: And I mean, that is something that is incredibly difficult for Hugo to refuse because he is deep in debt. He just lost his wife. There's lots of medical debt associated with that. Um, He's also a spiritual healer, though he's a bit skeptical about it as well. So there's a lot uh, going on with him. So tell us about Hugo.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hugo is, is uh, you know, he was born uh, and raised for a short period in, in Bolivia and, and immigrates uh, to the United States at a very young age. But for Hugo, that history is kind of uh, locked away or sealed away for him. He doesn't like thinking about it too much. There's something about his past uh, that has caused him to kind of become in some ways a, a non-believer. Um, Hugo is someone who When the novel opens up, is living in a small efficiency, kind of like a small studio apartment attached to a house in Miami, and who's incredibly isolated, mourning, continuing to mourn the death of his wife. And, um, and someone who, for the most part, uh, has his life locked up into his daily, into his rituals. You know, he goes to work, comes back home, and so forth. So, so he's somebody, um, who, the way I like to describe it is that all the available spaces of Miami are kind of closed off to him. And, uh, throughout the course of the novel, uh, you know, his, he, he begins to really kind of struggle with, uh, what it means to be a Babalao, a spiritual healer who uh, doesn't believe in what he's doing. Um,
0: so I want us to focus on his profession. He's a Babalao. For listeners who are not familiar, tell us what that is. And also if there are other terms that you're familiar with are used to, you know, refer to someone who uh, removes spirits and is a healer.
1: Oh, sure. Um, so um, a Babalao is, uh, I guess in Miami, often uh, you might hear the word Santero,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Uh, and it's someone who um, practices uh, Santeria, uh, which is uh, a religion uh, that um, kind of really came to fruition uh, in the Caribbean and in Cuba, uh, but is largely influenced by uh, the Yoruba uh, religions uh, that came over uh through the slave trade. And during a time in Cuba uh, where uh, those who owned slaves um, did not allow religious practices to occur, Santeria became a way of negotiating Yoruba traditions with the kind of very dominant Christian Catholic religions in Cuba. So it was a way of kind of uh, flying under the radar <laughs> in a sense. Um, so Hugo um, is a is, uh, Santero, a Babalao, and he's someone who helps, um, uh, Kind of create a bridge uh, between uh, the orishas or the spirit world uh, and the everyday world, you know. And he works at a botanica, uh, which is a store that sells various religious relics and and services. And he works with his his supervisor is a woman by the name of Ludes, uh, who is really the true uh, priestess uh, there at that botanica. And the way I like to describe it is that. Uh, you know, Hugo's the one who handles the money, makes the transactions, gets down and dirty in the trade and in the business of it. And Ludes really doesn't want to get involved in any of that uh, and kind of uh, keeps a distance from the daily uh, transactional nature um, of anything affiliated with the botanica.
0: Right. So... I want you to also share with listeners, you know, your inspiration for this book and also just having a character at the center who is a Babalao, who goes around homes in Miami and, you know, they're banishing spirits, they're cleansing these homes. And again, Hugo, or main character, he's not so sure he still believes in all of this. So um, tell me about your inspiration for this story, but also its prevalence in the Miami area and how that may be played into the novel.
1: Yeah. The, the, the inspiration, um, the story actually, um, it began as a short story. Um, I was, uh, living in Nebraska. Um, I was, I was doing my PhD work over there and I remember, you know, I was, uh, struggling under debt, uh, working under a small stipend and, uh, it was a particularly cold winter and I'd gotten home from, from school. Um, and rather than doing uh, some of the work that I needed to do, I felt that I really just needed to write about what I was experiencing. And Hugo emerged from that. It was a moment uh, when I was living in Nebraska, feeling a bit isolated and just kind of wondering, how did I get here? You know, and, and remembering Miami, remembering the warmth of South Florida. So it began there. Um, and part of, part of the reason I wanted to write it was just to get my frustrations around debt and these kinds of pressures out on the page and to explore that a little bit. Um, but over time, um, you know, I, I actually shelved to the project and returned to it uh, after, after some time, because um, I felt that in my initial go to with a novel, um, I was maybe being a bit too negative or uh, or maybe really applying too much pressure on Hugo. And I wanted to reassess that and reevaluate it. Um, so the second time I returned to it, I actually returned to it with the intention of turning it into a novel. And when I did that, I had a few other projects in mind. You know, I knew I wanted to explore that and to explore what that means for Hugo. But I also wanted to explore what it means on a broader scale. Um, you know, in what ways, as an example, are the systems that we kind of take for granted in the United States indebted to certain violent histories? Right. Um, in what ways might a novel be able to excavate that? So that, w- that was on my mind. Um and then in addition to that, as somebody who grew up in South Florida, uh, you know, uh, in, somebody educated in Miami-Dade public schools and who grew up in a, a Cuban exile community, right? I feel, too, that Miami is a place that has uh, become incredibly complex. Uh, you know, there's a seismic shift occurring in the way that it's developed into this global city. And and I wanted to tell a story um about Miami that somehow acknowledged that larger shift uh that wasn't... Uh, strictly, let's say, uh, told from the vantage point of a Cuban American, uh, but rather that somehow uh, you know makes a nod or or note to the larger Latinx community. Uh, so there was a, a sense of decentering. Uh, what is it? The Cuban American enclave in Miami to really try to broaden uh, the 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 vision or the vantage point of a larger Latinx community. So those were some of the things floating around in my head when I set out to write it.
0: Oh, wow, that's so interesting to hear. I I really enjoyed this book. I, I thought it was great. Um, or main character, Hugo, I enjoyed following him. Uh, I know he felt that maybe I'm just going to show up to my debt collector's home mm-hmm. and, you know, just do a couple little things and walk away. But... Um, He also, too, has to reckon with his past. And um, there's humor in there. There's tragedy in there. Um, Just the inequities we experience as human beings. But I was really invested in his personal story. And his is one of love and loss. So I thought, I thought it was great. So I'm so happy to have it. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So I want to get into your writing life. You said you had started writing this book. Uh, well, first it started as a story, then you came back and revisited it. How did Hugo change from your first draft? Was it that, you know, it was a bit more angry and brash and this final result was a bit more hopeful?
1: Yeah. In the in the initial draft, um, uh, there was a lot more of his interior life uh, that that had less uh, less of a presence uh, in the story. Uh, and in many ways, it was because uh, it was a short story and I didn't have a lot of space or time to really kind of uh, excavate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one way uh, in which returning to Hugo, I began to wonder, did I know him well enough in the story initially? The novel gave me a lot of space to really uh, dig into his past and to uh, acknowledge kind of the the flame within him, right? mm mm-hmm. So there's that, there's that component. Um, and, and the other shift, uh, from a story to a novel was that, uh, the, the story at times, the, the pacing felt, uh, like it was a bit rushed. Uh, the novel allowed me, uh, to really kind of take my time, uh, with every single plot point, uh, and, uh, and just kind of give it uh, the attention it deserved. Um, it almost uh, was demanding to be a novel from the start, but, uh, maybe being a student, uh, and not having the time to really uh, delve into it uh, prevented me from doing it back then.
0: Did you have like an alternate ending to this book or was there something cut from the editing process that you actually loved?
1: The Actually, the uh, ending, uh, it, it was uh, something I was nervous about uh, building up to it because I had a general idea of where I wanted uh, the novel to go. And uh, and I wondered whether, uh, you know, it, it would ultimately all come together together. Uh, and it was through, um, you know, getting uh, really great feedback from peers and, and through the editorial process uh, that I really gained a lot of confidence and in, in, uh, felt that everything was clicking into place in ways that I felt comfortable with. Uh, but yeah, the ending there, uh, you know, without giving it away uh, was such a fun, uh, fun section to write.
0: Oh, I love hearing that. So prior to this novel, you had a story collection. Now, I have to admit, I, I, I didn't read this one. Uh, but tell us about In This World of Ultraviolet Light. What can readers expect if they want more from you? It's,
1: it's, a, it's a short story collection, about eight stories. Um, and uh, Miami is the, the kind of uh, sometimes explicit and sometimes implied subject of each of, the, uh, each of those stories and what the story collection does is it looks at tensions uh between Cubans and Cuban Americans uh or Cuban Americans at various stages uh in in their histories in Miami or uh the larger Latinx community uh and and tensions between the Cuban American community and what what it attempts to do is kind of uh um, draw those out right and apply pressure on them uh with the intention of of really kind of getting down to the bottom of uh you know, what it means for Miami to have grown into a global city in the way that it, it has. So it's a, it's a collection of, uh, these, these short stories are, they're fast paced and, uh, you know, uh, experimental in ways sometimes that, uh, it's a little harder to do with a novel, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they, they, they spend 10 years of my work.
0: Oh, wow. Well, I'm a fan of short fiction. I'm always advocating for that on here. So I guess I need to go look at this <laughs> one since it's very Miami-centered as well. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Uh, but. We're greedy readers on here. We love books. And even though I'm here recommending yours to listeners today, we also like looking ahead. Are you working on anything right now, uh, whether it's a novel, a story collection, um, anything in the works?
1: Yeah, actually, I, I am working on a, on a new novel and uh, really excited about it. Again, it's uh, the focus is Miami Um but um a bit more into the future um uh, you know i'm thinking i'm i'm in conversation with uh, uh frankenstein annihilation and uh, and kind of really thinking about you know um I, I like a dystopic uh setting with a larger question of uh what 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 does it take for a for a city to kind of rise up again uh in in the imagination um what a uh, you know what does tourism look like uh in miami you know 200, 300 years from now, right? Um, kind of exploring those ideas.
0: Right, right. Okay, well, that sounds interesting. Again, South Floridian here. (laughs) And I love reading those things. And of course, you know, tourism is such a big thing here. And, you know, what will the strain on resources be as we just grow, 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 but also um, just the dynamics? So I'm interested in whatever you have to write about what the tourism will look like in the future. And of course, um, what that means for us locals, you know?
1: Thank you. You know, I was actually uh, telling my daughter today, you know, somebody who grew up in Miami and and went to school in Miami. One of the stories that I remember learning quite early was the story of uh, Julia Tuttle, Mm. who mailed Henry Flagler orange blossoms as a way to kind of prove to him that Miami is always warm, right? Uh, And even if there's a deep freeze elsewhere, you should really bring your railroads down to Miami. And uh, and it wasn't, you know, I I grew up on that story. uh, Mm -hmm. And I remember fondly Driving on the Julia Tuttle Bridge and and thinking, "Oh, you know, this is her bridge. How cool!" And it wasn't until years later, studying literature of South Florida and history, uh, that I learned the whole story is made up. (laughs) It's a fabrication.
0: You're joking.
1: (laughs) And there are other stories uh, like it um, that really mark Florida as, uh, you know, like a like a place. where like there are these exceptional qualities about the state, uh, mm-hmm. like the fountain of youth and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it's fascinating uh, to see why those stories emerged and and what they mean.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't grow up here, but um, everything—it's just—it's quite fascinating. There is, you know, a lot to the state, and um, yeah, I'm very interested in in what a futuristic look would be. So yeah, I'm super excited about your book. Um, But I want to know now that you have a novel out, you're working on your second book. If you could tell your younger self anything, what would it be?
1: Oh, um, to, uh, what is it? To really just kind of uh, enjoy the the process, right? Uh, You know, uh, the greatest joy I've had as as a writer is uh, anytime I actually sit down to do it and get lost in it you know, and, uh, even if there are other, uh, tensions or anxieties in life or things like that, right. Um, uh, ultimately making the time to sit down and write has always been worth it. Uh, you know, whether it's a good writing day, a bad writing day, you know, I think my younger self maybe spent a little too much time thinking about the final product and what that would look like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as opposed to like really, uh, just making it part of one's life. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. I can see that 100%. But Raul, I want to get into your reading life now, because again, like I said, we're greedy people. Uh, But we want to know what you're reading and what you're loving. So share with our listeners the last book or books that you finished reading that you'd now recommend.
1: Well, um, I'll start out with uh, Joy Castro's uh, One Brilliant Flame. Um, Joy Castro uh, is just an amazing uh, fiction writer, nonfiction writer. Uh, person. Uh, and One Brilliant Flame, it's set in Key West. It's a polyphonic novel with multiple points of view, a historical novel. Uh, and uh, I spent a, quite a bit of time in Key West, so it, it hits home uh, for that reason in particular. Mm-hmm. You follow this amazing uh, cast of characters around a historical event uh, that occurred, a, a massive fire uh, that occurred in the island, right? Um, and, um, and, and just an absolute treat. Uh, so Joy Castro's One Brilliant Flame. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, Cristina Garcia's Vanishing Maps. Um, you know, I, I grew up, uh, reading Cristina Garcia, uh, dreaming in Cuban. And, uh, this is, I guess, uh, dubbed the sequel, uh, to that, uh, following the, delpino Pino family, but this really fascinating project, right? That really kind of hit close to home in which a family, uh, a Cuban family is now dispersed uh, across the world, right? And so these larger questions about what it means to uh, belong or, or what, uh, what it means to, to have roots, right, to an island or to a place surface. And I, and I feel uh, in particular for the Cuban-American diaspora community uh, that this, this is a question that a lot of people in my generation are thinking about. Um, um, so it's r- really timely and uh, like anything she writes, uh, just a gem, a gem of a novel.
0: Oh, awesome! I know you said you you were reading Christina Garcia from you know a, a young age, uh, but what would you say was your favorite childhood book that you can remember? Like that one book that captivated you when you were really young.
1: The um, The Rats of Nim by Robert O'Brien uh, blew me away. I remember. Uh, I remember. I loved the movie, um, uh, cartoon, uh, and then uh, and then I read the actual book, mm-hmm. and I was like, this is not like the movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> right i mean it was it was my first example of like oh the book is like so so amazingly better than the movie so the rats of nim stands out uh the never-ending story again the the book itself um you know uh these these were books that i came to after enjoying the movies uh and feeling oh, i want to i want to read the actual book and uh, cool. it's just a, it's amazing it's an amazing novel uh i still remember every chapter ending with uh some really amazing, like the beginning of some amazing story. And the mm-hmm. final sentence is always something like, but that's a story for another time. And it just moves on, right? I love uh, that. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. What books are you looking forward to reading in the year ahead?
1: Well, I'm I, on my list, and I guess on my TBR, uh, and soon up is uh, Claire Jimenez's uh, What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Uh, really excited about that one. Um, also excited, uh, to read Gavino Iglesias, uh, the devil takes you home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, um, I'm carving my way out to make some time, uh, to really lean into it. He, uh, and another book, um, uh, book of poetry, a debut collection, uh, by, uh, Jamaica Baldwin, uh, it's called bone language. Um, you know, Jamaica's an am- amazing poet and, uh, really looking forward to, uh, to this collection to see all these works together and, uh, And to go through the experience of moving through them.
0: Absolutely. And I just want to say, I absolutely loved what happened to Ruthie Ramirez. (laughs) Such a great book. I also had a chat with her. So it's somewhere on the podcast feed. I'll link it in the show notes because I can't remember it right now. yeah but she just amazing 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 work but also on the show we love indie bookstores so share with our listeners your favorite local or maybe an indie on your travels uh but just share some indie bookstore love
1: you know uh in miami it was uh always books and books and uh, coral gables mm-hmm. um i remember uh Just early on, uh, when I was, when I was just dreaming of having a novel, going to get a sandwich there, a coffee and, and, you know, just walking, walking the bookshelf, the bookstore and, and just imagining, uh, what that would be like. And and in fact, I'm going to have an event there, uh, December 27th, um, which is just a, a dream come true. And then here, here in Ithaca, New York, we actually have two really amazing, uh, bookstores, uh. Buffalo Street Books, uh, independent bookstore, uh, where I I had my uh, launch party. Um, Amazing space, uh, uh, cooperative-owned bookstore. And then Odyssey Bookstore uh, nearby, uh, which is a little smaller and a little more intimate. uh, But they're both just fantastic spaces.
0: Amazing. So... Getting back to your book, A Haunting in Hylia Gardens, and just kind of wrapping things up and tying it together. I know you've done your job, you've written a book, you've given it to us, but how do you want readers to feel after reading A Haunting in Hylia Gardens? What are you hoping they might think or feel after they've turned the last page?
1: That's a fantastic question. The, uh, I mean, what I, what I really hope, um, especially since the novel really contends with uh, with debt, uh, and, uh, what we owe to one another, but of course, what we also owe to the, the kind of systems that dominate our life, these financial systems, right. Um, I, I hope there's, there's a bit of optimism. I hope that there's, there's a sense, uh, that there are kind of adjacent or available spaces that one can move in freely, you know, uh, even when, um, you know, uh, the kind of systems that dominate our life can seem claustrophobic at times. Um, you know, I think, I I think a lot of, uh, kind of like in the Marvel, uh, movies, right. Where there's, there's always like this moment or like in transformers, there's always this moment where the world needs to be saved somehow, right. Mm -hmm. We need to save the world. And, And what I hope readers think when they close the book or at least ponder for a bit is what exactly is it that we're saving, right. What needs to be saved, uh, right? What might we just discard? Um, Just a few thoughts, hopefully without giving much away.
0: I love it. Raul, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: for listening to the Reader's Couch podcast. Please subscribe to the show, share it with a friend and take a few seconds to leave a rating and review. Until next time, stay lounging, stay reading and whenever you're in doubt, go straight to your local bookstore or library. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.